Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tukowski. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and highly regulated industry. Today, we are back talking about one of my absolute favorite topics, artificial intelligence. But before we do that, I do have to extend a great thanks to my sponsor, BAI. Make sure to check out BAI's free webinar series at BAI.org. BAI is an amazing organization research, training, actionable insights for today's financial services community. Uh, So thank you to BAI for all of your support and making today's episode possible. Now, onto the good stuff. The ethics of artificial intelligence has been the subject of debate for years, uh, with the data science community itself often divided on what the proper protocols are for the ethical use of AI, industry is often left wondering. From a regulatory perspective, there had been very little clarity and significant amounts of anxiety from both industry and consumer advocates alike. The European Union's recent proposal regarding artificial AI regulation, released on April 21st of 2021, seems like a direct challenge to the Silicon Valley common view that the law should leave emerging technology alone. The proposal from the EU sets out a very nuanced regulatory structure banning the use of some AI, heavily regulating the high-risk uses of AI, and lightly regulating what they view as the less risky AI systems. Here to discuss that today is returning guest Clara DeRoti, Executive Chair of Cognitive Finance, the author of Decoding AI in Financial Services, and AI Tutor at the University of Oxford. Welcome back, Clara. Well, it's, uh, it's great to be back. Thank you for having me again. You're very welcome. So, Clara, before we get into what the heck the EU is doing, um, can you give my listeners a little bit of an overview? Tell us about your consulting practice. So we are based in London and we have started working um, in the space um, uh, beginning of 2016. So we've been around for for a long time. I have been uh, working um, with a board of directors uh, in financial services, technology companies, um, but also regulators across the globe. And before the pandemic, um, I used to spend more time outside England than here visiting uh, my clients and working with them on on real life projects of um, how to basically how to can we can we um, adopt ethical AI for business growth and uh, profitability? Uh, this is the the core strength of um, of our practice, and this is what drives us. Um, it's not just um, ethics; it's not just business. It's um, business plus ethics actually uh, brings purpose and profitability, in our view, and we have demonstrated um, so far. Um, I also advise um, startups, um, AI startups, and I work with them um, at the intersection of um, product design, uh, go-to-market strategy, and understanding how to fit in their offering in financial services highly regulated space. Obviously, uh, the proposal that the EU has set forth regarding these AI regulations is going to have a massive impact, 
uh, not only on your clients' businesses and business operations, the products and services, all of that go to market, but on your practice as well. You're gonna you're gonna have you're gonna be busy. Yes, it's um, in many ways we've been busy, and um, the good thing we've seen so far is that the clients we've been working with on this concept and applications of ethical AI from the beginning for business growth and profitability actually. Our clients are not very stressed by this the huge mountain of regulation coming our way because we have prepared for what I have always said and even wrote in my book as early as 2017 when I was writing the, the section on regulation uh, in my book. The writing has been on the wall for so long, um, especially in financial services. So. Um, Preparation uh, for our clients um, is going to save them a lot of money and a lot of headache. I mean, I think that's fantastic. It's great that your clients aren't having an anxiety attack about this, because I can tell you in the U.S., if this had been a set of proposed regulations that came out in the U.S. about how to how to regulate these systems, I can tell you my clients maybe would have had a slightly different reaction. Um, but that's thanks to uh, the U.S.'s uh, far less straightforward and slightly more convoluted regulatory structure than I think uh, the EU has managed to situate itself. Um, so we've danced around it a little bit, but Clara, why don't you tell us high level, what exactly is the EU proposing? And I know there's a lot of detail in there. So let's like conceptually, how's the EU approaching this? So the, the core value they started from is to bring European trustworthy AI um, in in place basically and the their view was that they wanted to uh, encapsulate the european values and uh, their approach to human rights um, data privacy um, individuals um, right to uh, be themselves um, and have some intimate space you know and respect that um, so they wanted to encapsulate those uh, european values in in a piece of regulation which in their view and my view i think it was um it was much needed it's exceptionally needed to clarify a lot of um, gray areas and confusions so this is the philosophical um point um origin point for for this regulation um what in practical terms, um, as you earlier said, the regulations um, are, it's a, it's a proposed set of regulations now. They're expected to uh, be finalized and ratified by the European member states um, um, around 2023, 24. And um, the, the regulations also allow for 24 months of transition period. Um, to to allow companies the time to adjust and align um, their internal policies to match regulations. Do you think 24 months is enough? Well, it's never enough. I, I'm in, in my previous life, um, <laughs> which I have mentioned uh, on this podcast, I, I used to work in the real life of dealing with compliance um, and dealing with regulatory requirements. And it's never enough, quite frankly, um, whether you give people 24 months or 50 months or 150 months is never enough because somehow things are left until the last minute. And again, this is a question of uh, leadership. It's a question of uh, planning in advance and preventing rather than dealing with a crisis there and then. Um, so, so you hear that uh, leaders start paying attention now. 
we don't want to we don't want to otherwise the last 24 months uh clara's advisory practice is going to get very very busy at the end <laughs> we we welcome to to work with um with clients outside of uh, european union because this piece of regulation although is issued by the european union um it actually applies to everyone who uh, who's looking to sell this technology and affects European Union citizens. So right. it's important, even for American uh, companies, it's important to uh, align and um, make sure that their products are satisfying the um, this regulatory requirements. Because there are quite a lot, um, but at the same time, I keep saying, although they seem a lot, I think they bring much needed clarity and much needed structure in how this technology and the systems have been uh, built, deployed, maintained. So it um, uh, sounds very frightening when you, when you look at the, the length of the regulation, but actually when you break it down, um, it's, it, it does make sense actually. Well, let's talk about what those requirements actually are. I know there's a few, uh, you know, buckets, and uh, so what is yeah? So what do the regula What are the regulations trying to regulate? So, uh, well, as you said earlier in the uh, in the opening of for for this podcast, uh, it's it's a risk based approach, and that basically clarifies who sits where and what kind of work they need to do. So um, the proposed regulation classifies AI users in four uh, risk-based categories, uh, which is minimal, limited, high, and unacceptable. So they, the regulation identifies unacceptable um, uh, AI systems, um, and uh, as much as they want to regulate them, they can't because they're simply unacceptable. So this is very interesting. What are the um, unacceptable systems, Clara? Well, well, there you have it. The primary focus of the proposed regulation appears to be high-risk AI, where the risk is classified as unacceptable. Um, but here, what I wanted to bring in here is a few um, use cases. So we just focus a little bit um, into what's actually happening and will happen. So. Um, High-risk AI um, is where the risk is classified as unacceptable, and that includes remote biometric identification of data subjects of people, um, systems known to contain bias, um, AI systems used for credit scoring, and um, systems used for hiring and promotion in organizations. Um, interestingly enough, the list of high-risk AI systems um, the regulations propose is to to be amended and reviewed as an ongoing uh, uh, concern. So it's not this is not it. It will be amended. It will be extended if necessary. And I think that's a that's that gives some room for for uh, what people always say that there are some for any piece of regulation there are un um, uh, unplanned. Um, uh, effects or side effects to it. Before, I, I want to talk about the the high-risk use cases, specifically as they pertain to financial services, mm. um, which is obviously mm. a core part of your area of expertise. Another mm. highly, highly regulated industry that is used to a barrage of, you know, regulations 
on, on everything they do. So why would the deployment of AI technology within their organization be any different? But there are some bans, right? Like outright prohibitions that are proposed in the regulation. I think I think what the regulation had said was that AI systems that cause or are likely to cause physical or psychological harm through the use of like subliminal techniques, exploiting the vulnerabilities of, of a specific group of people due to some protected classes like age, uh, disabilities, um, systems that operate in that way, unacceptable, not allowed and, and, and absolutely prohibited as part of these regulations, right? Absolutely. When it comes to financial services, I'd like to put a little bit more focus on on three um, uh, areas of immediate relevance to financial services firms or indeed um, technology companies, AI companies, vendors, um, which are looking to sell their technology in or to financial services um, environment. So the first one would be evaluating uh, a person's credit worthiness or credit score. Second one, obviously, is monitoring and evaluating work performance and behavior, employee monitoring for compliance purposes, or uh, indeed algorithmic management. And um, I'm going to just put a pen on that because I'd like to specifically come back to it because it's very important. Um, and finally, the third um, area is recruiting staff like advertising vacancies, screening application uh, applications or evaluating candidates in an interview or indeed tests. So these systems are permitted, but firms must comply with strict rules. And this can um, include deta detailed obligations around risk management, data quality, uh, technical documentation, human oversight, transparency, robustness, accuracy, and security. So allow me two seconds, because I'd like to come back to uh, the algorithmic management um, AI systems. These are very important. I remember um, when I was writing this section in my book about two, two three years ago, um, I remember what triggered me was a presentation by then the CEO of IBM um, at Davos. And she was um, um, very keen to explain to the world how their latest AI system enables um, recruiters, uh, sorry, enables companies to predict when someone wants to leave the company. And I, I, I to me, it was just like, just jarring when I, I heard that. I was like, in, and I think the conversation went on and she kept on explaining that, actually defending her position, that for a company to know, to, to be able to predict when someone wants to leave the companies actually improves their retaining uh, staff policies. But that's that's just surveillance um, packaged um, as retaining staff policies. And I, I only believe that it's just, it cannot be right. And quite frankly, when I saw the regulations coming from uh, uh, from European Union, I felt finally it's this is so important because I cannot believe I used to work in in the corporate environment. My son works in, currently in the corporate environment. Um, it's 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 very stressful to know that at all times you are being monitored, you are being surveyed. So instead of going to work and do your job, you all the time surveyed where your eyeballs are moving, what are you reading, how much time you're spending on on documents. So. Um, 
I'm glad to see this. It's, it's, it's so funny in the U. In, in the, I mean, not that I do this with my business, but in the U.S., all of the employees, you're like, your email's not yours, your desk isn't yours, nothing's yours, and you, there's sort of an expectation that you're being watched and monitored um, all the time. And in fact, there's a ma- like massive, massive industry of you know. Uh, organizations and technology uh, that that log into, you know, the webcams built into employees' computers, monitoring keystrokes. I mean, ev- everything that, that you, you could see, possibly I've, imagine. I think, I think in Europe, we have a different view uh, when it comes to this. And this oh, is- Oh, I again, don't think, I know. I, I am. <laughs> I, listen, I I keep saying I'm European. I live in, in England, but I'm European. I lived in quite a few European countries um, until, until my 20s. So in my formative years, and I think all of this European values, um, this is exactly what the European Commission wants to um, encapsulate in these regulations. Everywhere you go in Europe, no one would feel comfortable to, to be the, under that level of surveillance. I don't think so. No, I, 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 I understand. Um, so <laughs> you, I wouldn't want it either, but I work for myself, so I don't, I don't monitor myself. Um, the, I, I would, I would actually challenge that and say that, that perhaps Americans would feel the same like Europeans um, are feeling about this. Um, interestingly enough, I was uh, reading the other day that um, only 4% of Americans have agreed to be monitored by um, by app in their in their smartphones. You know, since Apple has introduced this um, this ability to to stop apps um, surveying us through iPhones, um, quite a lot, and it gives the user to the possibility to reject um, surveillance or accept surveillance from these apps. So apparently, only five four percent of Americans. Uh, users of iPhones have agreed to be surveyed. Um, and that shows that actually when you give people the option, I, it's undeniable uh, that people would prefer not to be surveyed. And I think we are entitled to have some um, space for ourselves. So I, I definitely appreciate and understand uh, that that's true. And it follows sort of the same model that the privacy laws, I think, did. So obviously GDPR was way ahead of any of the US, you know, based regu- uh, regulations with regards to privacy. And it's not even so much an issue of what's right versus wrong, but it's about giving consumers the choice. Right? It's about the choice. What do I want to share? Who do I want to share it with? Um and even if 9 times out of 10 a consumer may choose that yes, I'm happy to share my data with mm-hmm. this third-party organization, you've now empowered the consumer to make that choice and exercise privacy rights. So this seems like a very natural extension um, and consistency, right? And the consistency in the way to approach regulation. The tricky part is, is unlike privacy, which is sort of straightforward, do I want my information private or don't I? uh, The application of artificial intelligence is far more complicated, far more complicated. And to the extent that a consumer even knows it's happening. Well, I th- I think it's that that is the component which quite a lot of people reject. Um, there is a school of thought, um, f- primarily emerged from the data science community, um, and also probably futurists. Um, they they're very they are great believers in 
putting all the data, share all the data for the greater good. Um, so that's that's a very powerful move in that direction. My concern is that um, probably we are are, are we are, are we doing exactly what we did um, with social media when we thought that if I can see um, uh, children's photos and uh, cats' photos and uh, engage with my friends, uh, we're going to solve the world's problems and everybody's going to just hold hands and in a big hug around the globe well that has proven that not, is not absolutely not so case. much <laughs> not so, so much um, so this is my my concern when it comes to sharing data personal financial data in fin in, in financial services space um i think there is a very little understanding as to how those those um actions or current actions will impact and again coming back to this piece of regulation it's good to see that there are some some uh, um points in time the regulator is placing in front of ai developers and users as well because this is another interesting um component of this regulation it involves the users of ai as well and they have their own responsibilities so this piece of regulation it puts some points to stop and reflect and check and make sure that you use the right data make sure that you keep um, um a tr track of how you you build your systems how you maintain them i mean this is uh, someone uh, back in 2016 i remember uh, uh, she's she's a chemist um and she was saying like i wouldn't be able to sell uh, medicines or anything in my shop if i didn't keep track clear absolutely detailed track um of what i do in order to create or distribute the drugs i'm, I'm either creating or selling so this component right. of auditability uh, for for high risk AI systems um, is very very important. Um, I know the data science community doesn't like it because um, it's quite boring to continue to to wonder um, have I tracked everything I've put in it or have I explained what I've done? Right. Um, so yeah. Well, let's let's take a moment and talk about one of the use cases um, that we were discussing. I think. I think the credit scoring uh, part is fascinating and obviously has massive and broad implications to all sorts of financial services organizations, banks and non-banks alike. Um, question though, just because uh, a term of art that I've come across uh, in reading not just the proposed EU regulation um, is the concept of social scoring. Now, when in the EU, you talk about social scoring. Is that the same as credit scoring, or is that different? I th I think the the social scoring encompasses more components than credit scoring. Um, that that would be my my immediate thoughts about it, um, and my immediate reaction to to your question. Um, I think social scoring. I think it's more like um what we we see perhaps in in china where components of our lives are aggregated and measured and they bring a certain ranking so for instance how many times you jailwalk for instance you know that's that's not credit scoring isn't it um i would say so um that would be my immediate reaction um but uh, I'd, I'd like to just share the 
I know it's a lot of pushback, even in Europe, uh, when it comes to uh, listing uh, credit scoring as as a high risk AI system. Um, but what has come, what has become apparent, is that um, when credit scoring uh, systems are run, some of them incorporate alternative data um, sure. on financial data, and that has proven that type of data has proven to to be a, a blatant infringement of um, privacy laws, uh, data protection laws. So that's where the concern is, because um, people in social scoring system, they've went outside of the, the usual framework to use other type of data. Well, I would say that in, in the US, um, alternative data has sort of been uh, touted as a potential solution to what many view as sort of a flawed credit scoring and credit reporting system here with the idea is that if you involve more alternative components and maybe social, I will call it social story scoring criteria, there is actually the potential to expand the opportunity to provide financial products and services to individuals who based on a pure credit score alone, because of how flawed that system has been, give them access to financial products and services that they may not have otherwise had access to, which would be a good thing in theory. Um, so the, the, that it's a difficult balance, I think. Well, the, the, the it's a very difficult balance. And the, the point of regulations is to make that balance easier, not more difficult. And it's also, um, a point, as I said earlier, a point of reflection for people who build these systems to actually ask themselves, you know, what am I even doing here? Um, I think one of the, the the conversations I come back to with with my clients is always the basic question, like, do I really want my children to be subjected to this kind of tool? How are my grandchildren? So is that it's it sounds simple. It, it is common sense. And like anything else in life, any concept which is reduced to the core of, of, of what it represents, when you reduce it and simplify it to the basic uh, root, I think that's, th that would be a yes or no answer. And that clarifies quite a lot of things. But obviously, we have conversations like um, I was talking to some investors the other day, they were saying, like, Oh, come on, you know, just like, um, the return on these investments is so attractive. I don't really care how they collect data, you know, as long as they do it, like the money keeps coming. And I just, I stopped them for a moment. And I said, I know you're prepared to put hundreds of millions into this company, but do you want your so-and-so son or daughter to be subjected to this? Would you, would you be comfortable knowing that you directed this money into <laughs> that system? And I can oh, see to be to be a fly on the wall during those conversations. I'm not even going to ask you what the response was. No, no, no <laughs> I, I, I don't think I want to know. <laughs> I, th I think and you can you can see when you pose that question that simply the, the it's a it's a moment when they go like, oh, hang on a minute. You know, this is not just about money. This is not just about how many more millions I'm going to make if I invest in this is actually uh, we are we're building a new world in a world which we might not be able to come back from. And again, I keep referring and drawing a parallel with social media world, which we created. And we've seen firsthand um, what we've created. 
we have. Clara, there are a lot of critics out there who would have have everyone believe that regulations like those that have been proposed by the EU are actually going to stifle innovation because you're going to overregulate it. Innovation will be stifled. We're not going to have uh, the same types of uh, products and services that would otherwise be available. Do you agree with that? No. That's the short answer. Um, and I'll tell you why. I'm not because I'm against innovation, far from it, but because I'd like to propose a different way to frame the narrative. And um, interestingly enough, how this is how I've been working with clients and this is how I've been doing my job as far as I know. Um, it's always looking at frame, how can we frame a topic? And sometimes we are constrained. And actually, innovation happens when we are constrained. Um, a new book has been uh, published recently. It's called Framers. Um, and it's, it's actually bringing this concept into, into a tangible book. And I always recommend uh, to my, my clients and my, everyone I know to get hold of this book and read it. It's very interesting to understand that once you're constrained, you need to reframe what you do and actually you can innovate within that frame, within that constraint. And the best example I can bring to you is fintech. It's hard to challenge me here. I'd like to hear from anybody. <laughs> what other industry has reinvented itself more successfully than fintech? I, I can't find an answer now. Which is the second uh, industry which has reinvented itself so successfully with technology is healthcare. So these are two highly regulated uh, industries. And I think they um, is the case in point. So I believe that the more regulation, not, not the more regulation, I think this current framework of regulation provides the minimum necessary to frame a business model going forward and provides structure into how we need to run certain processes to deliver and build the systems and maintain them. So, this, so the short answer is no, I don't believe, I don't believe this regulation will stifle innovation far from it. If anything, will uh, will uh, flourish, innovation will flourish in Europe. So, uh, you know, we've talked about some examples of high risk, uh, high risk applications of AI um, and the way because of this risk based approach, um, things like credit scoring, uh, use of biometrics, surveillance, stuff like that, obviously, and rightfully probably categorized as high risk. Are you surprised at all that the proposed regulation isn't treating, you know, we've mentioned social media a few times during our conversation. The regulation doesn't treat the algorithms used in social media, search, online retail, app stores, things like that. They don't classify them as high risk the way they do, you know, some of the other use cases we were talking about. Does that surprise you at all? Well, yes and no. Um, I think a piece of regulation of this magnitude uh, needs to be mindful as to how it enters the market. So um, it's interesting that the regulator has left the window, the door open to update the list of high risk AI systems. Sure. But 
at the same in the same time i think the regulator has made it quite clear that ai systems which aim to manipulate um people um and discriminate against them i think these are symptoms which we have seen in social media um use those systems are not uh, are are regarded as high risk so sometimes you don't need to name something in order to you just need to describe it do you think that was just a way to sort of make big tech think that they had, you know, a temporary win right now? Only? Well, it's hard to say. I just like definitely I'm a lot of things, but I'm not a mind reader of the European no. <laughs> uh, regulators. Um, but no, I mean, I, it, it, it struck me. It, it struck me as interesting is all. Absolutely. Because I, you're right. Mm -hmm. be because you're right. The the most massive big tech issues, particularly with regards to uh the way algorithms have worked or not worked, as the case may be, really do arise in the social media category. And I was like, oh, social, they didn't put that in the high risk. That was fast. That was kind of fascinating to mm, me, mm. Um, given everything that we've experienced over the past uh, several years. Um, but as you said, the door is open. That may change. Um, and I think it's important, uh, listeners, uh, to know that as Clara mentioned at the beginning of the episode, these are proposals. These are proposed regulations. I think we can expect um, a lot of revisions. Um, industry is going to certainly uh, provide input, pushback. Um, so we may see a variety of permutations uh, and massaging uh, and refining of the a lot of the proposals that are set forth. But what we don't think is going to change is the philosophy, um, the core beliefs, and the risk-based approach to the way um, artificial intelligence uh, applications and systems and technology are going to be viewed and assessed and ultimately regulated. Uh, even though there's there's room for improvement uh, and refinement within that structure. Uh, it'll be interesting to see from my perspective whether or not uh, the United States follows suit uh, you know, before we started recording, Clara, we it, it's interesting that to the extent that companies in the U.S. with regards to U.S. citizens think that this doesn't affect them, think again, the, you know, the writings on the wall. So literally simultaneously as the EU is putting together its proposed framework, very lengthy, well-documented proposed framework, the U.S. regulators are put out a request for information. Right, a combination of five U.S. regulators, uh, CFPB included, put out a request for information from industry about artificial intelligence generally, how they use it, how they deploy it, the costs involved, this, that, and the other. Um, and they wouldn't be doing that, in my view, if they weren't planning on putting together a framework of their own. It'll be interesting to see if there's any concepts that they borrow uh, from uh, the proposed EU structure um, or if we're going to see this as another blatant uh, example of sort of the different approaches uh, in the EU versus the US. Very interesting stuff. Uh, what I do think, you think, Clara? I, th I think uh, the only thing I would like to, uh, to add to, to what you've just said, um, Dara, is the component about um, personal financial data um, at the moment this is the most valuable um you know asset 
one can get their hands on in order to develop the systems. So again, I'm, I'm putting focus again on financial services. Um, and it's, it's very important to, to uh, take a little bit of, you know, a long view and walk a little bit away from the heat of the moment and the debate and the disagreement between fintechs and banks and who owns the data and who has access to it and why is that fintechs can't access the data and why and then we have on top of this we have the open banking uh conversation which is like another open finance now right it's open finance now. well call it whichever way you want you know it's open I, whatever it I is still, it's open and again it's just it comes with a whole host of visionaries thinking that the more we share the data everybody's going to just live in a big hug and uh, like a big happy group of people and we're going to be all of us better off that's not going to happen um but i think what is important to understand is that all these parties stakeholders are trying to are fighting are trying to get hold of this personal private data your data my data how many times we buy shoes how many times we go shopping you know like that transactional data it's interesting this transactional data um in my research I, I did spend some time doing some academic research in 2016 um primarily looking at the what's an emerging field which now is referred to as uh, neuroeconomics basically looking at how systems create certain brain activities and how do we respond to that and how how that impacts how we behave so what is what has come up very blatantly is that the more we have access to one's financial data we actually understand that person at a level of in, uh, uh, intimacy um better than they know themselves almost and definitely superior and better better than uh, what um, algorithms in social media using social media data points can understand a person. So this is very, very important um, point to bear in mind, okay? So when you, when you look at getting hold of this data, so call it open finance, call it fintechs fighting with the regulators and banks pushing back and all that, no one actually thinks, hang on a minute, what's happening about, you know, my data and your data do does john really want his data to be the subject of this fight um has anyone asked him maybe we can try to compensate him somehow create some systems to to include these people because we're fighting over their asset at the end of the day the data which we produce financial data is our property so um that's actually an excellent point to sort of wrap up on because uh, I think you know that not everyone would agree with with that. Well, with that statement. I think I this think you know not everyone would agree with that statement. Here have already created like a long list of uh, technology and Silicon Valley people, and you name it, uh, criticizing me. Um, happy to take all the criticism. I'm can no problem. Let's hear, debate you it. Hear, you hear that Silicon Valley? Clara says, "Bring it." She will happily and skillfully answer all of those questions. Um, Clara, I can't thank you enough for your time today. Uh, I think that it's going to be very interesting to see um, what all regulated, all regulating bodies in the EU, US, um, Asia alike, uh, how they plan to approach um, this evolving area. Uh, this is just the beginning. We're, we're certainly, we've just sort of scratched the surface of it. Um, and I think you're right. And 
we have to take a longer term view of the true long term impact of the decisions that we make today, uh, not just for ourselves. It's not just about uh, investment returns. Um, it's about what we want um, for our future, for our children's future, and really for humanity's future and how we're going to look at how we treat one another um, and what really does serve as uh, a foundation for basic human rights going forward as our lives become so much more inextricably intertwined with the technology that we interact with. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Another great episode. Clara, uh, you know, we'll, we'll maybe have you back in, a, in, you know, six to 12 months and we'll see where things are. Sound good? The pleasure is always mine. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Thanks everyone. Until next time.